If, if you were to ask me to tell you about Yeshua, uh, the man we know as Jesus of Nazareth, if you were to ask me to, to unpack this world that he grew up in, these first three decades, what he grew up in and what it was like, I would start in 4 BC. I would start actually here. Sepphoris. Because it was here in 4 BC that we, we read this, what sounds like a throwaway line in Acts chapter 5. It says this, it says, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. Now I want you to picture this, right here in this town, somewhere near this scene right here, there's this, this surging mob, this throng, this crowd, all cheering, chanting. And as you like push through the crowd, you get a glimpse of this mysterious figure, this man named Zadok the Pharisee and Judas the Galilean. And it looks like Zadok wants to say something, but the crowd's so loud you can't even hear. And someone turns to you and they say, they've done it. It's a miracle. And people are just celebrating for miles and miles and miles. You can hear the echoes, the cheers. You see, earlier that year... If you were here last week, you know that Herod the Great died 4 BC, and he died miserably. And when he died, this chaos broke out. His oppressive hand was suddenly removed, and then his four sons, they tried to do what he did. They tried to hold together Palestine, but the fact of the matter is, is they just could not hold it together. And when this mismatched, uncouth, uneducated, like band, this militia of peasants gathered together, they were able to overtake Sepphoris, the city, the capital of Galilee, which just happened to have the entire Roman army's Galilean weapons supply. And this crowd was ready for a war. See, when Herod died in 4 BC and his sons took over, they couldn't hold together. So they, they went towards bribery. We're going to bribe people. And the violence, we're going to kill people. That, that'll keep them down. When those two things didn't work, they went for the throat. They went for the one way they felt like they could control every Jew in the land. And that was the temple. See, all other ancient peoples, they would have lots of temples. But not the Jews. They, they were this peculiar people that only had one temple. One place to worship God. One place where they gathered all their tithes and offerings. One place where they could find justice and peace and forgiveness and mercy. One place where orphans and widows went seeking help. The Herodians, Herod's four sons, they took over the temple. They bribed everyone they could bribe among the priest and, and the Sanhedrin, the leading council. And those who would not be bribed, they killed. They took the temple treasury. And the office of high priest, the, the symbol of God meeting man on earth, this sacred position that was supposed to be passed down through the sons of Aaron, they sold to the highest bidder. And at this point, for devout Jews, this was the horror of horrors. Like the whole thing was a sham. The whole thing was mockery. You come to the temple and now it's controlled by these godless, immoral, greedy men. The whole thing is ruined. Like, where do you go to find God in those days? And a man named Judas the Galilean, he, 
he had enough. So what he did is he went back to Galilee, this land of bandits and troublemakers and peasants, and he gathered a militia, and he said, we're going to war. We're going to war with Rome. And the amazing thing is they did. Like, they actually did it. They took Sepphoris, and for more than a decade, it was independent. Roman oppression was not there. They owned it. They had all the weapons. And then we find in 6 AD, so it's now been 12 years later, Rome realizes that Herod's sons, they just don't have it in them. They can't get the job done, so they say, we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to put a Roman official now over all of Palestine. He's going to be called a prefect. The most famous one is Pontius Pilate. You may have heard of him. And this prefect then sent in the Roman army, and they sieged Sepphoris. But they said, we're not here to retake Sepphoris. We're here to make a point. And they burned it to the ground, and they caught every single person they caught over 2,000 people, men and women, were crucified on this road right here, the roads leading in and out of Sepphoris. Meanwhile, just three miles away, like less distance, like from here to Valley Forge, from the edge of Phoenixville to Valley Forge, less distance than that, three miles away in a small village, close enough that you could actually see the plumes of smoke coming up. Close enough that you would hear the screams of 2,000 people writhing on crosses. Close enough that you would actually see the crows circling above. There, somewhere in a workshop, there's a boy running around, probably helping his father. A boy named Yeshua. His name literally means God saves. But that day, God would not save And we know him as Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. So sitting here today in one of the safest, wealthiest nations in the history of the world, in this beautiful facility, in a place where religious freedom is just written into our social fabric, a place where where personal rights and personal freedoms are taken for granted. We have a, a bill of rights as Americans. Living in a place where we have never seen a city burnt to the ground and we have never heard someone screaming in crucifixion. Like, I can't wrap my mind around what it must have been like to grow up where Jesus grew up. Like to have seen a city burnt to the ground, to go on a walk outside your neighborhood and along the highway, as far as the eye can see, there are crosses with bodies hanging on them. Like, what, what does it feel like to grow up in that world? How do you continue to believe Yeshua, God saves, in a world like that? How do you grow up in a world like that and not let your heart just be filled with hatred and violence? When we attempt to reconstruct these first three decades of Jesus' life, what we find as you scour through history and you scour through archaeology and you look through all the evidence, you just find bits and pieces. We know that he grew up in Nazareth, but we don't know much about it. I mean, it's it's tiniest, it's the most forgettable, tiniest little village you've ever seen. This interconnected village that we really know almost nothing about because no one knew anything about Nazareth. It was forgettable. And we know that he most likely did what his father did growing up. 
His father was a tecton, a, a, a carpenter, but not just a carpenter, a worker. The, the word tecton to the Romans didn't just mean carpenter. It meant like illiterate peasant, someone who's a day laborer, like a group of guys who would stand around and wait for someone to pick them up and hire them for the day. That's what a tecton is. Jesus probably grew up learning a trade with his father just like that. And we know that after Sepphoris was burnt to the ground, that Herod the Great, his son, Antipas, he actually went in and decided to rebuild it to the grandeur that you can actually kind of see a bit in this picture here. He, he rebuilt it to this, this level of Roman excellence. And we know that in order to achieve that, he went throughout the entire region and had every single carpenter, every single tecton hired so that they would work there to build these extravagant, lavish homes for Romans and Jewish aristocracy. So we don't know, but it seems quite likely that Jesus, when he was in his teens and into his early 20s, he was actually walking from Nazareth to Sepphoris to build luxury homes for Romans and Jewish aristocrats while he lived among illiterate peasants in a forgotten village. Bits and pieces. That's all we know. So I say all this to say it's with great interest that when we come today and we come to open up the earliest Christian witnesses and say, tell us about Jesus. Paint the picture for us. Show us who is this man. These first 30 years that seem to be almost forgotten. We just have these bits and pieces. Tell us about him. What do we need to know? How can we enter into his word? How can we really know who Yeshua is? And so we ask them when we open up Mark Tell us, who is this son of a carpenter? Who is this man? And he says in Mark chapter 1, So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Thanks? Mark, you you didn't hear my question. I was asking about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus, those first 30 years. What are you supposed to do? Uh, Okay, okay, forget about you. Luke. Luke, tell me about Jesus. What do I need to know in order to meet this man, to really know his world, to know who he is? And Luke says, okay, sit down. You guys sit down? Good. There's this priest, old, old priest, and he went into the temple. And he had this vision. This angel actually showed up to him and promised that he would have a son, this wild son who would prophesy things like Elijah. And and it was awesome. And and it says in Luke chapter 1, and you're to call him John. What? Okay, okay, okay. John, not, not John the Baptist, but John the Gospel writer. Let's get something clear here. I'm asking you about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. That's what, the, he's the one we're interested in, right? So he says, great. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then he talks about, this is exciting stuff. This is uncreated reality. God himself is speaking things into being. Light itself, Jesus is there. He is the light. He is the Word. And we're like, yes, this is awesome. And then in John chapter 1, verse 5, and there's a man sent from God named John. You just included John the Baptist in the creation narrative. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. How did John the Baptist just show up at the beginning of the universe? Like, I don't know. Every time I ask the earliest Christians to tell me about Jesus, they insist that we must start by talking about John 
And today I just want to ask the question, why? Why, when we know just from the little bits and pieces of history we have, parts we've already covered, we know that Jesus' first 30 years must have been filled with drama and, and just violence and just the power of God. These must have been juicy, great details. Why then did they just skip over all that? Why do they feel compelled to tell us about John the Baptist? Why do they insist that before you ever meet Jesus, you need to meet our friend John? Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 today. If you have your Bibles, please join me. I'll have the text up here as well. We're going to start in verse 1, and it says this. In those days, in the days we just talked about, and the days when Rome was supreme and sovereign, and the days of violence, and the days when anyone who stood up and said, I'll lead you, I'll be your people, we'll defeat Rome, I'll be your king, those people died crucified. And those days of fear and poverty, when all the devout Jews were desperate for a new kingdom, a new era, a new king. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, now, I want you to notice something. Matthew doesn't tell, this is the first time he's mentioning John the Baptist, and he gives us no background. He just says, this guy, John the Baptist, shows up in the desert and does this. And do you know why Matthew doesn't introduce John the Baptist to any of us? Because his first readers already knew John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not some small preacher preaching in some middle school in some small town. That's me. John the Baptist was a figure when he showed up on the scene, the entire nation knew about it. He was the son of a priest who walked away from wealth and prestige and from Jerusalem itself. He left all that behind and he went out into the wilderness and like a prophet of old starts talking about the kingdom of God. A kingdom of God, language that we've only heard in, in bandits. Guys like Hezekiah, guys like Judas the Galilean, guys who end up crucified, guys who are set on war. And here he was. Now, let's clarify something real quick. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, um, I have no idea what really pops in your mind. And so I'm I'm suspicious, though. I I think when I say kingdom of heaven, right now, what pops in your mind? I don't think any of you are considering moving to Montana and doing this. I love that Jesus is actually included in that picture. (laughs) You see, 2,000 years of church history has sissified. If that's the word, sissified? Sissies. This phrase, kingdom of heaven. But the fact of the matter is, is back then, we're talking militias, crucifixion, war, kings. I've got to take that picture down, don't I? When I say kingdom of heaven, you're more likely to be afraid that I'm going to hug you than to stab you. But in those days, in those days, in the days of John the Baptist, when you came out and said the kingdom of heaven is near, that's, that's like getting on a fully loaded plane and screaming terrorist. Which I would not recommend. Like you just don't do that unless you want everyone's attention. And here he is. 
Nobody missed this. From the temple to the palaces to the smallest villages like Nazareth. Everyone knew who John was. And these hordes of people from all over, all types of people, it will say, go out, pour out to the desert to see, who is this guy? Is he starting a militia? Is, is he going to do a violent takeover? Is he uh, some prophet of old? Is he just crazy? Is he all of these things? And so Matthew wants to clarify, this, this is what you need to know. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah And he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 40 here. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then he says in verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now when you first look at this, especially from our perspective, this seems an odd combo of things to put together. You're like, he is a prophetic figure and a redneck. Like, seriously, it looks like he is the fulfillment of a 700-year-old Hebrew prophecy. And he only wears wife beaters and likes to eat that, like, like tacos from gas stations. You're like, what's the deal here? But I want you to see, these are two thoughts, but these are one thought for Matthew. And to just see John the Baptist as a redneck, which he probably was is to miss the bigger picture, though. In verse 3, he's saying he is the voice of one calling in the wilderness. This is Isaiah chapter 40. Maybe the most famous of all prophecies of all the scriptures. And maybe the best song in Handel's Messiah. Here's the scene. Isaiah chapter 40. God's people have self-destructed and their own sinful choices. Like everything seems lost. And there, over his people who are weeping, God says, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. God says, it's over, it's done. I put your sins in the past. They're forgiven. I'm bringing you home. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to heal you. And this is how you know it's going to happen. Verse 3 says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare in the desert, prepare for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What we talked about last week, it's the same thing as Hosea chapter 11, that, that God's going to start what's a new exodus, that people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, they're all going to come in. They're going to pour back to God. All these people who've been far from God are going to come to him. They're going to find forgiveness and healing. That the judgment's going to end. John the Baptist is the sign of that. And then you read in verse 4 that what he wears, a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Well, as you read this, if if you're part of Matthew's early, early Jewish Christian audience, you're like, wait a second. Man, I've seen somebody who looks just like this guy. You start, where was it? And you start looking through and you come to 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 8. And you see this wild man preaching in the wilderness. He's so courageous that he stands up against kings. And let's see, what was he wearing? Um, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 says, He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Oh. But that guy's name was Elijah. Which is the point. Malachi, five centuries before John the Baptist showed up, Malachi, prophet, said, 
you know this is coming, that the pathways, the highways, God's going to pour this in. When one shows up who is like Elijah, he says, see, I will send my messenger. This is Malachi chapter 3. I will send my messenger, God speaking, who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 4, it says this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah, that God himself is going to show up. But first he's going to send one to prepare the way. And he's going to look a lot like Elijah. John the Baptist is not just another bandit. He's not just a crazy man. He's not just a preacher. He is the voice of in the desert, singing the song that people have been waiting 700 years to hear. He's a man like Elijah. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, we'll get to those guys, Coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with, your, with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit, every tree that does not produce good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In the first century, there were a lot of philosophies about the kingdom of heaven, just like there are today. There were a lot of groups and sects and different ways of thinking about things, different theories about how do you get to God or what does it mean to get to God and and what does it mean for God's kingdom to be among us. Uh, One ancient historian, a man named Josephus, Uh, He was a Jew turned Roman ally turned historian. Around 90 AD, he he wrote a bunch of historical works. and, And in it, he outlines what he calls four major philosophies. The four philosophies of ancient Palestine. If you want to understand the Jewish people, and you'll see all of these come up time and again within the scriptures. He says, the first one you need to know is about the Sadducees. These guys are the liberals. And you ask them, how do you get to the kingdom of heaven? They say, you're waiting for the kingdom of heaven? You're waiting for God? Like, man, you take the Bible way too literally. All these prophecies and stuff. What it means is that right now, if you obey these principles, you can experience heaven right now. Stop living for some future heaven, some future hell. What you've got is right now. Live for it. The next group, they call the Pharisees. And these are the fundamentalists. They say the only way to God is if you obey his laws, period. And if we obey his laws, if we would just stop sinning, you stop sinning and stop smoking and drinking and dancing and getting your tattoos and going out. I don't know what you do, but it's bad. Stop it. And if you stop it, then the kingdom of heaven would come. God would save us. The next group were the Essenes. And these were the isolationists. They, they were like, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing. It's hopeless. So they ran off into these desert caves and they just never came out. And the last group 
group that you've heard about already are the zealots. And these are the extremists. These are uh, Judas the Galilean. And they say, we've got to fight back. You know what? If the world's going to try and dominate us, we need to overtake the world. If, if the kingdom's going to come, we're going to bring it. All right, so the problem with this is we don't live in ancient Palestine, but we still have all these philosophies today. So let's update this a little bit. Let's say a Sadducee, a Pharisee, an Essene, and a Zealot, they all hop in a Kia like a bunch of hamsters, and they drive to the local movie theater, and they all hop out. Let's see a movie, guys. Great. So first the Sadducee comes up, and he's like, oh, Wolf of Wall Street. That's a Scorsese. We got to see that. We got to see that. And they're like, he says the F word in there like 500 times. The Pharisee, he starts unloading something from the trunk. You're like, what are you doing? He's like, I didn't come here to actually watch a movie. And he pulls out this picket sign and it says, End witchcraft. Save your children. Boycott frozen. <laughs> and the Sadducee is like, see that guy? He just needs to let it go. The Essene, he's like, he gets out of the car and he's just confused. Like, this poor guy, this is the first time he's been off the reservation. He's like, it's going to be okay. Bright lights, big city, it's okay. He's like, what's a movie? And the zealot, he's like packing things inside a big coat. And he's like, got a bomb strapped to his chest. He's just thinking about, how can I blow up this whole place to get back at the man? End Hollywood. That's who these guys are. But I want you to hear this. Each philosophy has its own idea of what's right and how to find the kingdom of God. And then all of these guys show up to John the Baptist and say, John, whose side are you on? You're talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, same thing. What what is it? Who's right here, John? And you know what John says to them? You need to repent and be baptized. And the Pharisee says, you mean these guys? He says, you need to repent and be baptized. And the Sadducee is like, I have no idea what he's talking about. You need to repent and be baptized. And all of them together are like, wait a second, John. We're all Jews already. We know God. Baptism is for people who don't know God. You know, back then, the only form of baptism was baptism for someone who was not a Jew who wanted to become a Jew. That's the only form of baptism we know from about 100 AD. We have this record that describes the, the practice of baptism back then. And it was extremely rare. And let me tell you why it was extremely rare. Because a non-Jew would come in and say, I want to become a Jew. And they would say, okay, you're going to now sit before this board, this rabbinical board. All these, these religious Jews are going to sit you down and this is what they're going to ask you. Why do you want to join us? Do you not know that in these days the Israelites are in trouble, oppressed, despised, and subjected to endless sufferings? And the candidate is supposed to answer, I know it, and I'm unworthy to share this glorious lot. And then, if that, he answers in that way, then they're to remind them, while you were a heathen, as you are now. You were liable to no penalties for the food you ate, for for desecrating the Sabbath, for breaking any of God's laws. But as soon as you become a Jew, you will face banishment for the former and death by stoning for the latter. And then they're supposed to tell them a little bit about the rewards of being a Jew. If they still want to go through with it, then you take them in, you shave their body. Men are circumcised. And then you baptize them. Baptism 
was an irrevocable turning away of who you were, your old way of life. It says, I don't want any part of that. Anything, anything that contradicts what it means to be a child of God, I'm putting it behind me. I'm putting everything behind me. I'm changing my name. I'm shaving my head. I'm changing my genitals. I'm changing everything. I want this covenant no matter what. And they were baptized into that. John looks at these guys. He says, that's what all of you need. You need to repent and be baptized. And Sadducee says, I don't need God. Like, I can make heaven on earth by myself. And John says, you need to repent. The Pharisee says, what do you mean? I follow all of God's rules, all of his laws, even some laws that I just made up on my own. And John says, you need to repent of thinking that you can please God by following laws. The Essene says, what do you mean? I ran away from the world. I've never seen a movie. I've never owned a TV. I'm not around those bad people. And John says, you know, sin is not something out there. It's something in you. You can't run away from it. You need to repent and be baptized. And the zealot says, what do you mean? I'm willing to kill for God. And he says, that's exactly the problem. You need to repent. If you want to find God's kingdom, you will not find it by following any of these philosophies. At the end of the day, these are all self-salvation projects. The zealot says, I will save myself through wealth and power and education just like millions of Americans. The Pharisee says, I will save myself through religious activities just like millions of Americans. The Essene says, I will save myself by running away from everything just like millions. And the zealot says, I will save myself by attacking. Here's the point. You can't. Save yourself. Everyone needs to repent. Everyone. When we asked the earliest Christians to introduce us to Jesus, why did they all first bring us to John? When, why did they all insist that before you should ever even consider Jesus or even talk about what it means that Yeshua has come, why do they stop and say, no, first, you have to hear this message. I want you to meet my friend John. Why do they do that? Because until you've repented of your own self-salvation project, until you realize that I cannot save myself and I cannot bring about the kingdom of heaven, then the man named God saves Yeshua, he will make no sense to you. I baptize you with water, John says, for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, this lost everyone here. How many farmers have winnowed the threshing floor? Okay, I thought so. So farming 101. This is wheat. Huh? Can we start there? There's a type of wheat. 
But you notice on the wheat, there's the outside. Inside is this, the grain, the good part, the part that you want. On the outside, there's this big husk all around it. Kind of like um, miniature corn, right? You, you want to eat the gear. You don't want to eat the husk. And so what they would do is they would, they would beat it, beat the grain when they would gather it in, and you crack the husk. And then all you have to do is take your winnowing fork and throw it. You start throwing it, and the chaff is so much lighter. It's empty. It's superficial. It just blows away with the wind. And the grain falls down, and, you, and that way you can separate the wheat and the, and, and the grain. And, and he's saying that this is what it's like when you're going to meet Jesus. Like it, it's going to be a beating that's going to crack your facade. And if there's nothing in the middle, if your faith is about what you can do and about you saving yourself, if it's empty, if you haven't really repented and you are not ready for him, then you're going to blow away. He's gathering in the grain. Chaff is all image with no substance. Chaff is a facade. It's external. Chaff is someone who pretends to be something that they are not. And there is nothing fake about Jesus Christ. All the walls that we put up and the facades and the empty promises and the pretending, they are going to be cracked and blown away in His presence. Until you've repented, you cannot possibly even know if your faith is real or not. Okay, so this, this is too ancient and again too far. So since we can't take a piece of grain to the movie theater, let's do something else. Let's, let's talk about something we know. Marriage. The Bible will regularly compare our relationship with God with a marriage relationship. So I just want you to imagine this for a minute. Imagine there's a young, studly guy, someone like Ron. He needs a wife, by the way. If someone wants, if you know anyone, let's hook up Ron. So someone like Ron, but, but much worse than Ron, actually, comes and he finds this girl and says, Ah, oh, I want to marry you. I mean, I love you. You make me tingle every time you walk in the room. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And he buys this biggest, fattest ring he can. And he hires this big, cheesy orchestra. And right as she walks in the door, he falls on a knee and says something beautiful. And there's crying and tears. And they, you know, six months later, they walk down the aisle. And, and they, they stand there at the foot of the aisle. And they even write their own, like, little... Uh, instead of saying, you know, covenant language like I make all the people that I marry say, they say something cheesy like, I love you more than ESPN and my monster truck and she's crying and he's crying. I love you more than butter, you know, butter cups and uh, blah, blah. And everyone's crying. It's beautiful. They're going to run off to a, a honeymoon. And when they get back, they, he pulls up to her apartment and says, man, this has been great, but I got to go. She's like, got to go. What do you mean? But we're married now. You're going to move in, right? And he's like, move in? Wait a second. Wait, whoa, whoa. Back this up. I mean, I love you. Don't, don't get me wrong. I love you to the bottom of my heart. And this relationship is so real to me. And oh, more than my monster truck. But you know what? You can't expect a man to give up everything at once. Like, this is a relationship. It's a process. I need a little bit of space. I'm going to go back to my apartment. You know, we'll talk about moving in later. She's like, okay. So the next day, she gives him a call. So, so when are you going to come over for dinner? He says, here's the thing, babe. I would love to come over for dinner. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I love you more than my monster truck. But, but here's the thing. I met this girl at the grocery store, and she just asked me if I could get some Thai food with her. And I thought, you know what? Heck, I'll do that. And she's like, what? And he's like, yeah. You see, uh, don't get me wrong. 
I love this marriage thing. But this just marriage is really not about two people living together and, and doing all that. It's really a spiritual relationship. That's what's important. And if you have this spiritual relationship, like my soul is connected to you, then I can date other women and I don't have to live with you. I don't have to share my finances, but I'm still married to you. No, that's not okay. That doesn't work in marriage. Like you can't say that you're spiritually married to someone and not live with them and not love them and not be devoted to them. No, in order to get married, you have to repent. You have to give up a life of singleness. You cannot do what you want. You are not your own anymore. And you are now hers. You're going to live with her. You're going to share your life with her. You're going to do life together. You're going to give your life to her. If it doesn't work with marriage, why in the world would we think that it works with God? You know, God, I love you. I really do. You're everything to me. Oh, I worship you. But you know, I don't want to talk about this issue in my life. I really don't want you to save me from that. And I don't want to give this up. When we repent and we give up on our self-salvation projects, our self-sufficiency our religious rules, our isolationism, our extremism, when we give up all these things that we depend upon to save us, then we're ready to meet Jesus. And I tell you what, he's worth giving up everything for.